The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our New Testament reading comes to us from Acts chapter 4 and 5. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have lied, not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After about an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, They found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. God, we thank you for your word. So the scorch mark on the floor stayed in the carpet well into my adult life as a reminder of my foolishness. I was sitting in my family's, my mom and dad's house in their basement where I lived, posing to myself as an eight-year-old this simple question. What would happen if I lit this wad of paper towel with a lighter? As an eight-year-old, I was curious about the fire's potential. But I had no idea about the fire's power. And on first light, sorry Ernie, firefighter, on first light, 
it was like a little birthday candle. Like, oh, this is pretty. But just after a moment, the flicker became a blaze that my, my little breath could not put out. And I began to scream, Mom, Dad, fire! And I dropped the paper towel on the floor, and it began to burn. I'll never forget the look of hot anger and intensity of my father's eyes as he flew past me to find something to put out what was now burning at my feet. I didn't know the power potential of what I was holding in my hands. I didn't know that if you didn't fear fire, you could end up on fire. The church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ on earth as he is in heaven, contains a fire. That fire is the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, the one who fuels everything that happens within a church. If the lights go on and you see your sin clearly, that's the Spirit's fire burning. If the lights are getting brighter and seeing Jesus as the only one who can save you from that sin, that's the Spirit's fire burning. The power to raise a dead sinner back to life, born again to new life, that's the Spirit's fire. The Spirit is the fire by which the Father's will can be understood, the Son's work can be clearly seen, and the light and the love of God can burn brightly through the world and through the church. That's the Spirit's fire. And so far in the book of Acts, the first several chapters, we've seen the fire mainly displayed through something like tongues. The spreading of the message on the tongues of people. The spreading of the message of Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead through the lips of the apostles. Through their witness. That's where we've seen the Spirit's fire mainly burn. We've seen the Spirit's fire burn brightly and how this new people of God, this new Israel, is looking more and more like the Trinity. How are they looking more and more like the Trinity? Well, the church is united in purpose. They're united in prayer. And they're united in possessions where what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. And they're united in power as they're preaching Jesus' name alone as the only source of healing and help. They're united. And the Spirit is on fire in this church. But in Acts chapter 5... There's a scorch mark on the floor because someone played with fire. How? With a lie. As we confessed this morning earlier in our service, lies are in the top seven list, the number two of things hated or disgusted by the Lord. Why? Why is lying so disgusting to the Lord? Because God is true through and through. What you see in God is what you see coming out of him. What he says is what he does. He's true. He's full of integrity. But what set this world into complete disorder and chaos and brokenness, friends? What did it? A lie. From the papa of lies. From the father of lies. From Satan. As he posed as a serpent in the garden, whispering in the ear of the woman, 
Did God really mean what he said? Is God really true when he said, don't eat that? And the woman believed the lie along with her husband. And then they attempted to lie to God by hiding from him. And so do we. We do this all the time. Maybe you walked into church this morning after a screaming match with your spouse. And you're asked, how are you? I'm doing great. We're doing great. We lie. We fear being honest with someone for how they might judge us. We smack our little brother. Sometimes, right? And in mid-second swing, when our parents catches us, we respond with the lie of, but I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean to hit him. He started it. Or, I just was love-tapping him. We lie. We lie by deleting our search history. We lie by deflecting blame. We lie by defending ourselves. We lie by distorting ourselves. We lie by disguising ourselves. But where the Spirit of God is, the truth of God burns. And if the truth of God burns in the church, the visible body of Christ here on earth, then the Lord is going to go to every length to make sure no one plays with her fire by lying. God is determined to keep his bride pure. And so God purifies his church with the fire of his spirit. And our response to God's fire purifying his bride, the church, how, do we, how are we called to respond? We need to fear the fire that burns within her. So I'm going to ask two questions this morning. What is, the fear, uh, what is the Spirit's fire that's spreading throughout the church? And then I want to ask the question, what is the Spirit's fire that he's putting out or extinguishing in the church? So first, what's the Spirit's fire spreading? What is he spreading within our church, within any church? The Spirit's fire spreads oneness. Look with me at verses 32 to 37. See the descriptors of oneness that the Holy Spirit is spreading among the early church. Look at verse 32. They were of one heart and one soul. Those two words are implying that they were all really connected to one another. The oneness was personal, relational, like friendship. They all were friends with each other. And they were all one soul. They were set on the same goal, the same purpose. It's personal, it's purposeful. But not only this, they were also one in their purses, in their pocketbooks. No one said that any of the things belonged to him was his own, but had everything in common. There's no mine or me in this church. Instead, there's us and ours. This oneness Evidenced in the body of Christ is supporting evidence of the God of the Trinity being at work in this church. In their oneness of purpose, and their oneness of relationship, and their oneness of how they handle their purse, you see the Trinity. You see the Godhead, three in one. The Spirit is working powerfully, it says. There was great power among them to give the apostles the singleness of mind to preach Jesus even after being threatened not to they keep with great power preaching verse 33 tells us 
And then there one in their purse and in their person. There was great grace as everyone's needs are being taken care of. So great power to preach, great grace in taking care of each other. And verse 34 displays the miracle of this oneness. Just think about this for a second. There was not a needy person among them. Not a single person that had a single need that was not taken care of. What does that have to do with oneness? Well, it has to do with the idea that people's value is also one. There's a oneness in value. There's not a hierarchy of the richer or the poorer or the better or the worse shaped in the church. We're all of the same value. No greater or less than man or woman in the church. They are valued as one. And so people are selling things. Rich people are selling things and laying it at the apostles' feet to distribute, to spread out, and make sure that everyone has this wealth. And what that means when they say laying it at the apostles' feet, the apostles aren't sitting on thrones like kings to be worshipped with money here is at their feet. No, that's not what's going on. The expression is more of a transfer of these funds to the authority, to the church's mercy ministry fund, of which the apostles, their feet, they're the administrators. So here, take this apostles and decide what you're going to do with it in the church and hand it out. And then we're given exhibit A of oneness. <laughs> Barnabas. If, we've got a lot of Barnabases here at All Saints, but he, he's just got to be one of the most encouraging guys. He's one of those guys that I know will shoot me a text and saying, hey, that sermon was great. I'm just so thankful for you. Like, that's Barnabas. They're just so encouraging. They love to encourage people. That's who Barnabas was. And he hands the disciples over the sale price of a piece of property that belonged to him. It's interesting, he's noted he's a Levite, because typically in Jewish custom and law, Levites didn't own land. So it is possible that this was all the wealth the guy had. He didn't have much, but he had this. And he said, here, take it. It's not his property. Why? Because his property is not his own. It's Christ's. That's what motivates Barnabas and what should motivate us. He knows, I've died with Christ. I'm no longer alive, but Christ is alive in me. I've been risen with Christ, and now I'm reigning with Christ in the church. He knows, Barnabas knows, I'm not my own, and therefore nothing I have is my own. The Spirit's fire is causing this oneness to burn and blazes. world has never seen anything like this. All saints, one Savior, oneness. If you've ever been, I have not. I want to see them at some point in my life. It's on the bucket list. But the Redwood Forest in California, ever seen these trees? Considered the, they're considered the largest created things on earth. They're the tallest trees in the world. Some of them are 300 feet high. I mean, the roller coaster we went to in New Jersey was the tallest roller coaster in the world. It was 300 feet high. That's how tall a tree is. And they're over 2,500 years old. That's almost the age of the church on earth. It's amazing. And with trees that large, you would think that they would have this incredibly deep-rooted system in each of the trees, reaching hundreds of feet into the earth. No. The redwoods are actually trees that have a very shallow system of roots. 
But what makes them strong and what makes them able to grow to that length and for that long of time is because they're interconnected. All of them are interconnected to one another. They are locked to one another. When the storms come or the winds blow, the redwoods stand because they're locked to each other. They don't stand alone. All the trees support the other and protect each other. This is the church interconnected to the vine of Jesus, to the root of all roots, who's connected to the Father through the Spirit. And we are connected to each other. The Spirit burns by spreading this forest called the church around the world like a forest fire. Fear that fire that's at work. And that fear, when we talk about fearing that fire, it's a fear that's not about punishment, friends. It's a fear that's about respect and reverence, knowing that our punishment has been deferred. It's a fear that's about respect and reverence. But it is a fear that burns with joyful oneness in the church. So how do we fear the Spirit's fire? We do it by fanning oneness. Fanning oneness instead of quenching it in the church. Okay, so how do you fan oneness in the church? (laughs) Well, I thought we would do uh, what our culture is doing. We change pronouns. Let's adopt the world's love for pronoun identification. I get so frustrated sometimes by it. It's so confusing to me when you say you're a they, and I'm like, wait, you're one. It's they is plural. I, no, let's, let's, let's adopt it. And here's how we're going to do it. Let's get rid of me and my and mine in this church. Let's replace pronouns with capital he and him and his. I'm speaking of Christ, of course. The church is his, so therefore we are his. Everyone in the church, we're united to him. That's your pronoun. He, him, and his. What does this look like then when we fan oneness? Well, give, me some, give you some examples. Hospitality. If my house and my food is now his, and you also belong to him, then my house and my food is yours as well. Time. If my time is his and you belong to him, then my time is yours as well. Struggle. If my struggle is his and you belong to him, then my struggle's also your struggle. Success. If it's his, and you belong to him, then my success is yours. So we need to start celebrating what other people, other churches, other ministries are doing besides our own. Because it's all his. Make it your aim to fan the flame, fan the flame, to rejoice that when your brother or sister say, lead someone to Jesus, You were part of that. Jealousy can go away. Rejoicing can come instead. Fan that flame of oneness with these pronouns of he, him, and his. But the way in which we can quench the spirit, and by quench, I'll put it this way, it means, as my friend says, to resist what we know he calls us to. And that we and our generation needs. That's what we mean by quenching the spirit. The way in which we can quench the spirit is by hanging on to pronouns of me and my and yours and them. Okay. We need to throw off stinginess of our time. We need to throw off hoarding of our stuff. 
I've got this motorcycle that is sitting in my garage and I never ride it. Just sell it and use the proceeds, Jed. I love my, love my motorcycle. It's just sitting there. Stop hoarding our stuff. And even the things that we will consider like in Lord of the Rings, like going like, my precious. Like those things that we just want to hang so tightly to. Let the Spirit fan the flame. Don't quench the Spirit if He's calling you to get rid of it, to sell it, to give it away. You hear of somebody who has a need, and it's like, oh, I have that. Here, take it. Oh, no, but maybe I might need it. No, just take it. Take it. Don't quench the Spirit's lead on that one. When the Spirit's fire burns in you to talk to someone in the church who's not like you, throw off your own comforts and conveniences. That's one of Christ's standing over there. We have a fourth Sunday feast, as I mentioned after service, where we all brought food for one meal as one family. Even if you're not a taco fan, stay. Because Christ is sitting all around the table. The Spirit's fire is spreading oneness in the church. At the same time, secondly, what is the Spirit putting out? What is the Spirit's fire extinguishing out of the church? It's this. I don't like it. It's hard to hear. It's necessary. The Spirit's fire is putting to death duplicity. It's putting to death duplicity. Look with me at chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. As the Spirit's fire fans into flame this great power, this great grace, through this incredible oneness, the father of lies is attempting to infiltrate the church with duplicity. Let's define duplicity before we go any further. Duplicity, according to Merriam-Webster, is a kind of deception in which you intentionally hide your true feelings or true intentions behind false words or false actions. So any organization, especially the church, is susceptible to duplicity. It's the fire that comes straight from the pit of hell. God is wholly pure and full of integrity. But our enemy would like nothing better than for the church to be corrupt and full of dishonesty. And the Spirit, in preserving the purity of the church of Christ, actively works to burn up dishonesty. See this in exhibit B and C, Ananias and Sapphira. They probably saw Barnabas give away his land. And they heard the shouts of praise be to God. And they wanted a cut of that praise. They wanted a slice of that celebration. Their pronouns had not been purified by the Spirit's fire. They were still operating with what's theirs and what's yours. And their plan Their plan was to look sacrificial on the outside and remain selfish on the inside. And they believed the church would never know what's going on. And their plan, by the Spirit's purifying fire, completely backfired and burned them. To be clear, friends, as you read this, the problem was not that they held back something. So if I don't sell my motorcycle, God's not going to strike me down. The problem is, as Peter makes it apparent in verse 4, is that after it was sold... They decided how to divide the profit, but they made it look as if they gave all of it to the church. The problem was duplicity. Ananias and Sapphira were wanting it to look publicly as if they gave all the proceeds away when privately, in their nest egg, they had some cash set away. 
It was a keeping up of holy appearances. It was people-pleasing. It was play-acting. It was performing religion. And Peter, by the burning spirit of God within him, discerned what was going on and called it out, first to Ananias and then three hours later to his accomplice, Sapphira. Duplicity will not be tolerated in Christ's church. It's what inflamed Jesus with Pharisees when he, cl- he talked about, the, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside stays filthy. It's what inflames the spirit as visible and famous church leaders are outed for years and years of sexual or ethical or financial misconduct. It's what inflamed the spirit during COVID as people who played the church game for years and experienced 6 to 12 months of having the Lord's Day off never step back through the door of a church. Duplicity destroys oneness. In his intensive study, on the ways of Adolf Hitler, Prime Minister Winston Churchill operated with one simple assumption about Hitler. He said, any foreign policy statement made by Hitler, I just assumed was the exact opposite of the truth. And that's the operating protocol of Satan, who filled Ananias and Sapphira's heart like he filled Judas's heart. The verbs are the same. As Judas. And what was the result for these two? Judgment. We're given a picture in that drop dead moment the shock of every unrepentant liar who stands at the feet of Jesus. Ooh, I better take a look at what I'm doing here. But what was the result for the church and the watching world around the church? A church that was filled with great power and great grace. Verses 5 and 11 now tell us the church is filled with great fear. How do we fear the fire the Spirit is putting out with duplicity? We need to fear the fire by putting to death duplicity and not grieving the Spirit with people-pleasing. Friends, this fear does not mean worrying like my mother-in-law did when she was growing up, that at any point in time, God's going to strike them down for a sin they've committed or a selfish act they've done. That's not what we're talking about here. For those who are in Christ, a sign of the Spirit's fire in you is repentance, is guilt. We didn't see that in Ananias and Sapphira. Sapphira had a chance to come clean, to confess her sin. She didn't. But if you experience guilt over your own lies or over your own hypocrisy, put it to death by coming clean with the Spirit's fire. When He convicts you of sin, that's a sign of His love for you. Love that leads you to the blood and the forgiveness of Jesus. Be honest about your sin. Be honest about your selfishness. And let the Spirit comfort you with the reminder that in Christ, there is no condemnation. Fear the eternal fires of hell, but have your fears relieved with the calming and the cooling waters of Christ's love. Friends, the holiness of God is not something you can pretend to have or perform your way into. The holiness of God is something that can only be given to you from Christ himself. 
When the Spirit burns in you a conviction to confess something, don't grieve Him by playing the game of hide-and-seek longer. When the Spirit burns in you a conviction to maybe confront someone you see caught in the trap of lies, do it with love, compassion, gentleness, and hope. But do it. Because if you don't, you're going to probably end up playing their judge for a long time in your mind. And playing judge of people is also a sign of duplicity. You're not the judge, only Christ is. Good luck playing judge. So I just wanted to take 30 seconds this morning for asking the Spirit of God's fire to search our heart and show us duplicity. Show us that duplicity that we might confess it both to God and maybe even to one another. I'm just going to be still for just a moment and I want to ask the Spirit again to search us. Where are we one way, Lord, at home and another way in public? Where are we holding back something and then publicly confessing we're giving it all away. Where are the hidden places of our practices that because no one knows about it, we believe you don't know about it either? Where are we playing judge, Lord, against someone that we see who might have the issue of dishonesty or duplicity, but we're saying nothing? Give us words to speak and give us grace to respond. I'll close with this. Oliver Cromwell is one of the most respected, highly decorated soldier and politician in Great Britain. He's about to have his portrait painted. As he was stepping into position to be painted, he remarked to the artist, Mr. Lely, I desire you would use all your skill to paint my picture truly like me and not flatter me at all. But remark all these roughnesses, pimples, warts, and everything as you see me. Otherwise, I'll never pay a penny for it. Saints, this is the Spirit's work. To paint in us the true condition of ourselves. Saints, this is not the finished fire. Because he covers the portrait with the clothing of Christ. That every roughness is smoothed. Every blemish is blotted and every imperfection made right. 
May the burning fire of the Spirit of God burn away any disfiguring and dishonesty and duplicity in this church and fan into flame at all saints oneness, one portrait, the pure, perfect image of his Son on earth as he's joined in unity to his Father through the power of the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray that you would do this work. I don't have much more to say about that, Lord, than do the work of oneness and do the work of putting to death duplicity. As we come to your table, we pray that our hearts would be stirred and convicted, that we would be able to see that sin clearly, maybe even more deeply than we thought about it before, so that we might see and know your love more deeply and purely. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.